Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Matt Yoka on Whirlybird. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by subject. For instance, select the current events in politics or documentaries subject for episode number 155 with Christine Stalakis on Pray Away. Hi, I am Christine Stalakis, director of the Netflix documentary Pray Away, and you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. We're taking another break from books today for the latest in my Docs on Pod series, this time with filmmaker Matt Yoka whose new documentary is titled Whirly Bird. Matt, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, Trey. It's my pleasure. So how did you end up attached to Whirly Bird? It was a very meandering but organic process, I would say. I wanted to explore Los Angeles and uh, particularly the time in which that I grew up in the city, which is the late 80s and early 90s. And so I was looking around for a story that could kind of let me gain access to the period of time in the city. And that was kind of how broad it started. So after that, I just started kind of narrowing it down and looking at different subjects, things like bank robberies, high-speed pursuits, stuff that's uniquely Los Angeles. And that brought me to helicopter reporting. And once you get to helicopter reporting, it's not long before you find Zoe Tur. So the two main characters in this film are Bob Tur, who is now Zoe Tur, and we'll certainly get to that storyline in just a second, and Marika Gerard. How did they meet, and what was the role of each other in that other person's life, both personally and professionally? Zoe and Marika met when they were really young. I think Zoe was 19 at the time. Marika was in her early 20s. Very Americana sounding experience. Marika was working at a movie theater. Zoe came to buy a ticket and was smitten and asked her out on a date where the story changes from maybe your typical early romance story is that their first date was filming a murder scene down in Skid Row, Los Angeles. So that's when things changed a little bit. But it was the reporting that was the foundation of their relationship. And I think that Zoe in particular had a calling to be a breaking news reporter. And for their relationship, it was an adventure. And when they were filming things like a murder scene early on, their first date, let's say, they they weren't working for anybody at that point in time. That was just being done in a casual manner because then Bob, now Zoe, owned a camera and just like going up to pretty intense scenes recording and just trying to figure out what was going on? Yeah. You know, when I say murder scene, what I'm really meaning is a crime scene. So, you know, there was nothing really in progress at the time. I think in the early days in particular, what you might call their bread and butter work as a news stringer, which is really the kind of work that they were doing. Although I think Zoe considers that term stringer a pejorative to what she was doing, but independent news gatherer, let's say. One of the main ways to get stories that can be bought, particularly overnight, are crime stories. So they listen to a police scanner, they show up wherever the police scanner is calling out the location, and they get as close to the story as they can. They film what they can, maybe they pick up some interviews, and then they take those tapes at the time, which were these kind of 
large VHS tapes known as three-quarter inch or beta tapes. They would then bring those to the various news stations, say, hey, I, I got a murder at, you know, down on Pico Boulevard with a couple interviews. Do you guys want to run it? And they would, you know, they would or wouldn't buy it. And Zoe and Marika had an incredible knack for finding the really big stories, which happened from the early stages of their career and, you know, culminated in historical events like the Los Angeles riots and the OJ pursuit. And they made this profession official by starting up the LA News Service. What was yeah. the atmosphere within their business in the first couple of years of getting things going? Well, I love the way that Zoe explains why she named the LA News Service the LA News Service is that <laughs> it sounded like a big company. So in a sense, it was really just Marika and Zoe. This, I guess at the time they were still dating but eventually they became married. And for a, a long period of time, it was essentially a small run operation between Zoe and Marika. And then eventually Zoe's mother, Judy, who was kind of the closer, if you will, the business negotiator. And then as the deals got bigger and the scale got bigger, they expanded. And so I think, you know, Larry Welk, who is Zoe's protege, helicopter reporting protege, he describes it as a very unconventional news gathering company. So the blend between family and work from the earliest days was very fluid. And so I think with that, in some ways, it was a very intimate run operation, but in some ways, maybe there was also blurry lines between what was appropriate and not appropriate. As you just alluded to, and as the title of this film alludes to, this is not about them going and gathering news stories from the ground. It's all about them really taking things to the next level from the skies with their whirly bird. How did, although it is now Zoe, how did Bob at the time get into flying helicopters? And just how quickly or how well received was their coverage from the skies from other news outlets in Los Angeles early on? Well, the thing about Zoe that's so incredible to me is that she's so she's so technically capable with whatever it is she's doing. So whether it was operating a camera or flying a helicopter, she understands the mechanics of it and becomes incredibly proficient really quickly. So the story goes, Zoe, at the time, Bob, didn't even have a helicopter's license, but she came to the realization that in Los Angeles in particular, and this always kind of, this is why it feels like such a quintessentially uh, Los Angeles story is that the most practical way as elaborate and extravagant as it might seem, the most practical way to get to the center of news stories in Los Angeles is by helicopter. The city is just clogged, gridlocked with, cars, if you're trying to get across town to a breaking news story by anything other than a helicopter, chances are somebody else is going to get the scoop. So it was a very, it, I think she approached it very much as a tool in that it was just, it was just the best way to get the story. What I think it also provided her with though, was a, was an adrenaline rush that I think she used to help kind of cope with various issues that she was facing internally, as she would kind of explain. So, Where did Zoe get her risk-taking nature from? I think she was always sort of an adventurer. I mean, whether it was speeding through the streets of LA, finding crime scenes, 
beating the competition, the news competition, flying helicopters, being at the center of a riot or chasing O.J. Simpson down the 405 freeway. It's just ingrained in her. And I think, you know, as Zoe and I spoke, and I don't like to really speak for her so much, but she's more or less said that the thing about breaking news is that it helped divert her mind from things going on in her head. So I think part of that adventurous, adrenaline-fueled lifestyle um, was a way of kind of coping with various struggles she was having. So I don't want to take away from her abilities and her love of flying or reporting but I think that also provided a sort of psychological effect that she needed. Was there any one story or piece of coverage that legitimized what they were trying to do from the skies in terms of getting other news outlets in Los Angeles to buy what they were selling them? Legitimize is an interesting word. I think that the helicopter allowed them to break stories that they couldn't have gotten from the ground. And So in that sense, it became a vital technique in getting the story. I also think with that came an evolution, or you might say a de-evolution of breaking news storytelling. In other words, it just became more and more fixated on action and violence. And the audience got more hooked on that. And it kind of turned into this feedback loop or this self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense that chicken or the egg, so to speak. Do the people want to see violence or are they delivering violence? And that's what people are then becoming accustomed to. The events that they got early on in their career from the helicopter that I think were very important, both culturally and for Los Angeles, one would be Rock Hudson being brought to the hospital after he'd been suffering from AIDS, largely in secrecy. And I think that that was a big moment for the country in their struggle with the AIDS epidemic. And so I think that there was an element of news gossip to that, but I think that it also was an important part of that narrative that was going on in America at the time. And then I I just think the Los Angeles riots are undeniably one of the most pivotal moments in American history. And I think from that moment, it was the helicopter style of reporting became kind of a foundation in American journalism. And I think Zoe Tur and Marika Gerard are the reason for that. Matt, who was Larry Welk? So Larry Welk is the protege of Zoe Tur. He was a young aspiring helicopter pilot working at the Santa Monica airport when at that point, Zoe was a well-established sort of cowboy in the sky, if you will, news gatherer. And Zoe took a liking to Larry. Larry's gregarious. And I think Zoe will be quick to say that Larry was also an incredible pilot. And so I think Larry just was really drawn to Zoe's spirit and her abilities as a pilot. And I think Larry also cites Zoe as one of the most incredible pilots she's ever flown with. And so Larry followed in Zoe's footsteps and is still reporting from the sky to this day. And the fun fact about Larry for some audience members uh, might know who this is, but Lawrence Welk was a very popular entertainer in the 60s, I believe it was, and had this variety show that's pretty outrageous, um, if anybody wants to look that up on YouTube. And uh, Larry is the grandson of, of Lawrence Welk. So even in this very L.A. story, even the other pilots involved have some 
element of Hollywood to them. How was Larry and then Bob's relationship epitomized during a story around the Zapolveda flood basin? <laughs> Did you enjoy that sequence there? Oh man, that was hilarious. I still don't know who to believe with that one either. Yeah, I mean, they all tell tall tales. Um, <laughs> but uh, right, I mean, I think this is a good example of what the working dynamic was like between the two is that there's a major flood happening in Los Angeles during the winter. Um, occasionally we get these flash floods and this basin was overflowing. There's this great shot of this street sign that says Burbank on it. And the water's just under the Burbank sign. And um, I had to rewind that. I thought that the sign had broken off. I'm like, no, that's just how high the flood is right there. Yeah, exactly. So we think of LA commonly as sort of a dry drought prone place, but in the winters we can get these very intense rainstorms that often result in mudslides, floods, channels overflowing, people getting stuck. So it's often very dramatic. And of course, because of that, it's also super important to report on for people's safety. So Zoe and Larry are flying over one of these floods and as was Zoe's nature, she didn't have a problem getting involved in stories. So in other words, if somebody needed help, she would run in to try to help. She'd put the camera down and help. But when she had somebody working with her, she would also keep the camera going. So in the case of flying over the flood, they spotted somebody who was stuck in the water and none of the rescuers had noticed. So Zoe insisted to what degree is up for debate that Larry jump out of the helicopter into the water and save this person. And that's just what happened. So uh, within a matter of moments, Larry is now a hero. Zoe's a hero. They've got it all on tape. It's a great day at the office for them. Are there any other good examples of Zoe as Bob becoming the story that he was looking to cover? Well, I think another big event that I wish... I was able to spend a little bit more time on this in the story, but there was a huge storm coming in from the Pacific Ocean crashing against this hotel. And the hotel was getting ravaged by these waves and the people, many people at the hotel were stranded there. So Zoe flew in, landed on top of the hotel and over the course of, I don't know how many trips back and forth, shuttled people with her helicopter to safety. And, um, she was uh, recognized for that accomplishment. And I just think that it shows the sort of complicated nature of Zoe. Um, somebody who uh, was an incredible journalist, was struggling with herself and her identity, always looking to make a name for herself, I think driven largely by her desire to, to build her company up, but also I think a real desire to help people. And so she would fly in and save the day whenever she could. So complicated person. How did a partnership with KCOP TV in LA help to evolve the business for Zoe and Marika? Well, it's a little bit of helicopter history. I think you'd go into helicopter reporting history is that in the very earliest days of helicopter reporting, not to just turn into a whole history lesson. Please do. I'm asking these questions for a reason. So you give whatever background is necessary, Matt. <laughs> okay. So Back in the 1950s, L.A. was the very first 
city in the world to use helicopters to report on news. You know, we talk a lot about the traffic gridlock as a reason for the use of the helicopter, but also geographically, Los Angeles is just a very diverse region. There's mountains, there's ocean, desert. I mean, it's it's an incredible landscape and the helicopter is a very effective tool to get across that landscape. So anyway, in the 50s, I believe it was, KTLA had the first news helicopter. It wasn't very efficient and there were a couple accidents along the way and it still was kind of this this, uh, technique that hadn't been refined. And when you got into the 80s, the method really of using the helicopter was just like a news van, essentially. You would fly in and somebody from the side of the helicopter, in the case of the Los Angeles News Service, that would be Marika, would open the side of the helicopter with a camera on their shoulders, seat belted into the chopper and film from the side. That would record to tape. And then you would literally drop the tape off at a news station. Marika and Zoe talked about literally flying over the top of a news station, dropping the tape down to a news director who's waiting with it. You know, (laughs) Marika said there was time she would literally take her clothes off to wrap around the tape so the tape wouldn't break on the fall. And sometimes she would be coming back to the news station in her underwear. That's how, that's how like active they were. So that was the early days, the guerrilla style reporting from helicopters. From there, what happened was they were able to refine the live feed. So the live feed then could transmit directly what the video was picking up to the news station, which they could broadcast. So when that happened, that really kind of transformed the way in which helicopters could be used for reporting, because what was then just sort of news gathering and then eventually broadcasting became a live news event. And so with that came what we now sort of find to be a ubiquitous story in Los Angeles is the high-speed pursuit. So now audiences could watch live as somebody was racing down a freeway being chased by cop cars, everybody waiting to see what happens. So that's kind of a general description of kind of how helicopters evolved in Los Angeles as a news gathering source. And so we have Zoe to thank for the greatness that is the high-speed police chase, correct? A lot of people cite Zoe and Marika for broadcasting the first live high-speed pursuit. So I don't know if I would necessarily blame them so much for it. I think that that in a lot of ways comes back to the news directors and the people working the news stations deciding to broadcast it, but they definitely captured it and served it up. So um, I think that uh, they, in some ways, are patient patient zero, so to speak, for the high-speed pursuit. Considering that they were the eyes in the L.A. skies in a lot of ways, it's not surprising that it was probably their footage that the rest of America watched when O.J. and Al Cowlings were fleeing the police. Was this as simple as them finding out about the pursuit and just flying to where it was happening? And was this the most excited that you saw Zoe when you were speaking with her about everything that she had done in her career? Zoe and Marika got that story. They got the scoop. Essentially, they were the first on the scene to find the white Bronco as it was being followed by several police cars. And they got that, I think, because they had spent over a decade covering LA 
case stories. Zoe in particular just had her finger on the pulse. She knew when a big story was coming. She often knew who to contact to figure out information about where the story was happening. And she had become an expert pilot along the way. So it was like everything kind of converged at that moment for her to be at the center of that story. And so I think she definitely deserves a lot of credit for, you know, that's just, I think that speaks to the, a local news beat reporter, you know, they talk about that as kind of a dying art, but just somebody who knows the city, who covers the city again and again. And when a big news story happens, they're ready for it. And so I think that was, I think that's really why Zoe got there. And I'm sorry, what was your second question having to do? Oh, was that the most excited that Zoe was when talking about her past? You know, I would say it's it's actually a little bit more complicated than that because I found that, you know, in telling Zoe's story, I felt that there was so much that people didn't know about in Zoe's experience from how she got into the business, her relationship with Marika, hundreds of stories that they covered. But most people, if they know one thing that Zoe did or two things that Zoe did, it would be the L.A. riots and the O.J. Simpson pursuit. So when we got to the part of the interview, when I was asking her questions about the OJ pursuit, I actually found it to be a really challenging section because she had answered those questions so many times. You know, she'd been interviewed about OJ so many times that for me, the challenge was to try to break her out of these packaged lines, you know, the packaged reflection of what her account of the day was like. And mm. with that comes a lot of, I think, reflection in the years that have since passed. So what my goal was to really try to take her into the moment. So I wanted less about 20 years later, what are your thoughts on OJ Simpson as much as I wanted? Take me into what it felt like to be covering the story at the time. And that's much of the storytelling style that I tried to implement for this film. It was more about an immersive experience. And I hope in that way provides a new perspective a little bit on what these events were like. And so to get Zoe into that zone, to get her into that state of excitement, I think actually kind of took a lot of work. It took several hours of interviewing just to really put her in that recall state of being there in the moment. So but once she gets going, she's one of the best storytellers I've ever met. So, you know, I have her to thank, I think, for a lot of what's in that film. Matt, Bob was really good at his job. What sort of problems did this cause both professionally and personally over time? Mm. That's a very good way of framing it. The better he was at his work, the greater toll it took on his personal life. Well, I think Zoe approaches life with an intensity that allows her to have what it takes to get at the center of a story. And I think a lot of people who are in the news industry would probably relate to the fact that the news never stops. That one way to think about your job in the news industry is to have what it takes to drop everything to go cover a story. And that's what she did for years and years. And so I think ultimately that wore her down and it doesn't matter how strong or resilient you are, you need to try to find that balance in life. And I say that as somebody who relates to Zoe, you know, having also been pursuing work and storytelling in a way that 
I felt that I didn't strike as good a balance. I hope there's a lot of people that relate to that actually, because it's, it's not so much to just showcase this one person who struggled with that, but to help us sort of reflect on how we all kind of struggle with that. Why did their business hit the skids? There being then Bob, now Zoe and Marika's business hit the skids in the mid 1990s. I feel like a variation of this kind of story happens a lot of the times. There's pioneers and then there's the people that run with it and continue it. And so I think that they, in a lot of ways, are credited for revolutionizing news, but ultimately everybody else figured out that recipe and started making their own content similar to Zoe and Marika's work. I also think that Zoe at the time was going through a lot of personal struggles and inner turmoil and that she had in some ways been using breaking news to avoid dealing with that. And I think that that's what created a lot of toxicity in her life and a certain amount of self-destructiveness, which I think she spent a lot of the film reflecting on. As we've talked about in this conversation, Zoe is someone that had been brewing in Bob for a while, even as he continued to advance his relationship with Marika. Is there any one thing that caused Bob to want to become Zoe enough to actually start that transition, whether it was visiting Burning Man back in the mid-1990s before Burning Man became this commercialized version of itself in modern times or something completely different? Is there something that pushed Bob to accepting Zoe and transitioning to that? I first want to, because you mentioned Burning Man, I just want to say, is that not yet another testament to her ability to keep the finger on the pulse? I mean, It was like, even when she was trying to get away from news gathering, she went to a happening that was going to become like a cultural revolution amongst a certain demographic of Americans. But on the note of her transition, I'm hesitant to talk for her about that. Okay. I don't really want to say necessarily if there was a single moment that I can point to that she felt that way. I will say, though, in our conversations, I think that who she really was, was buried deep down inside and that it took a lot of courage for her to finally acknowledge who she was and then eventually follow through with becoming who she is. And so I think that that struggle played out throughout her life whether or not she was conscious of it or not. But I do think that in looking back, she spots moments where she can now realize, oh, that is what she was dealing with. And, you know, you bring up Burning Man because that was a place that I think for her allowed her to get in touch with herself in one way or another. And that obviously didn't lead to an immediate resolution, but may have contributed to the process of realizing her true self. And I think things got really bad for her emotionally to the point of where she considered self-harm and that it was at that darkest moment 
that she was able to finally accept what it was that she was struggling with and begin her process of, I guess I, you could almost say healing. So I think that goes on to this day, but I think that's what she was going through a little bit. Again, that's just my perspective on it. It's not, it's not to speak for her. And I think that leads nicely into my next question because I agree with all that. But at the same time, Zoe says what I feel like is the most shocking moment of this film, that transitioning was a last resort. And she literally discouraged anyone from doing so unless they had no other options because of the inherent difficulties that come from such a decision. Do you think, at least in small part, the decision to truly embrace Zoe has to do with trying to reconcile with the damage that had been done with Zoe's family, with Marika, obviously, they're no longer together, but also his kids that unfortunately he does not have much of a relationship with either. Thank you for that question. I don't think that's the case. Okay. I believe that the reason Zoe transitioned is because she's a transgender person. And I think that when she talks about it being her last resort, my interpretation is not that she's saying people shouldn't do this necessarily. It's to try to get us to feel just how intense the struggle was for her, that she was brought to the precipice of death because she was so reluctant to accept who she really was. And so the interesting thing for me, I shared this film with a lot of people before it was finished to get their input. And one of the people I collaborated with closely is a transgender person, Andrea James. She was a story consultant on the film. And we had a lot of conversations about this. I didn't initially include that part in the film, but Andrea said to me, she felt that the audience needed to feel just how much Zoe was struggling. And when I brought up this clip of her talking about that, Andrea said, that's the clip. That's what many of us go through. And that's what Andrea said to me. And that's what helped give me the motivation to include that in the film. And so I do think that people are still trying to understand what it means to be transgender. But I think that Zoe's experience this is what it was like. And I think she's really speaking for her own experience and not for anybody else's. I would imagine that in the moment, as Zoe was saying that to you, it struck you as profound. Was your decision to initially omit that from the film? Why was that, I guess? I'm not going to make any assumptions here. Why did you initially not want to include that? Yeah, a bit to your point, I was concerned about interpretation. Okay. I think that Andrea James helped me embrace it because I need to be focused on the person's story that I'm telling and to do that story justice. And so that's what helped me understand what I needed to do there, what we needed to do really as the storytelling team. Well, thank you for including that. Thank you for listening to Andrea there. Marika is the sweetest person in this film. Has she found happiness post Bob slash Zoe? I think so. You know, again, these are these are kind of questions that I, I, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to speak for them. But I found that in the filmmaking process, both Zoe and Marika were really looking to 
explore their past and make sense of who they were as much as it was to make sense of who they are today. And I do think that Marika has found peace with her past that's allowed her to kind of enjoy her life today. And I think that's true for Zoe too. And I think, you know, one of the things I would say is that even since I finished making this film, I think Zoe is taking some incredible strides in her life and also doing some really interesting work. And I think that to the point where I've been trying to <laughs> let her make, let me make a sequel about what she's doing these days. So I really think that the story continues and that this isn't necessarily the definitive story of their entire life. It's just a part of their life. And so that's where I tried to contain the story to a certain degree, as much as I think there's more story to tell. Did Zoe stop flying helicopter after that final LA news service broadcast? The final tape that they recorded in the helicopter was the last flight in their own helicopter, which for me symbolized sort of the end of their career and the end of their marriage. It doesn't mean that the marriage or their career ended right when they got out of that helicopter. It did continue. And with that, Zoe would do some occasional flying, yes. But I think that was sort of the pivotal moment in the end of that chapter of their life. And last question, Matt. want to encourage everybody to check out this film. It's available now on demand. For those who do choose to watch this film, what do you hope that they take away from it? Well, you know, I don't really necessarily want anybody to feel like I'm telling them to think a certain way about anything. But what I am trying to do is create a space for people to reflect on the world around us and our own lives. And, and, and so I do hope that through this incredible, wild adventure that is Zoe and Marika's life together, I hope that some of it resonates with people in different ways. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing how that happens. So, yeah. Matt Yoka is a filmmaker whose new documentary is titled Whirly Bird. Matt, thank you for the time today and thank you for this wonderful film. I really appreciate it, Trey. Thank you. It's nice talking to you. Join me next time when I speak with Joan Koenig on The Musical Child, using the power of music to raise children who are happy, healthy, and whole. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.